Hey, Joe. What's up, Tim? In the movie we watched for the podcast, On the Beach, our characters waited nervously for a lethal cloud of radioactive fallout to reach their shores in Australia after a nuclear war. While I haven't experienced that personally, I do remember watching presidential election returns on election night in 2016, so probably, you know, basically the same thing. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living. I'm joined today in the podcast studio over Zoom with my special co-host for the episode, Joe Serencioni, distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, former president of the Plowshares Fund, and my former professor at Georgetown. Joe, welcome. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, Joe is a big fan of the movie we're going to talk about today, the 1959 film On the Beach. So I'm excited to have you here. This story is a group of Americans and Australians waiting for a lethal cloud of radioactivity to reach Melbourne, Australia, after World War III went nuclear uh, in the distant future of, I think, 1964. So a couple of years in the, in the future in the movie time. So our characters have a couple of months to contemplate their fates and the nature of nuclear war. Not necessarily a, a fun, happy movie, but Joe, what drew you to this particular film? What is your history with the the book and the film? Well, like you, Tim, I'm a fan of of nuclear-themed movies, and you've covered a lot of them in this podcast, including some of my favorites like Them, Mm -hmm. Seven Days in May, others. But I I look at these films like they're time capsules from the past. They don't just help us explore these themes, which in this case, they they do very well, but it it brings us back to the time itself, to the, the mores, the, the technology, the expectations, and of course, the physical place of the film. And this is a 60-year-old film, so it's, it's a deep trip back in time, but its themes still resonate with us today, particularly during this pandemic, where here we are, and for the, a year, we have been awaiting the inevitable arrival of particles we can't see or touch or feel, mm. but could kill us. Why is this happening to us? What could we have done to prevent it? Whose fault is it? And all these themes come up anew, even to the scene, you remember near the end of the movie where they're waiting in line for the medical pills. It's like waiting in line for vaccinations. But more than that, the film takes direct aim at the flawed theory of nuclear deterrence. And I hope we'll discuss that as we go along. And finally, I like this film because it looks at the effects of nuclear war from the point of view of the victims. You know, Even if we don't see the physical destruction we feel the dread. We feel this the sense of helplessness. The military are not the villains in this movie, but they're certainly not the heroes either. In, in this case, the military involved in the film had no direct role in the war. So you're allowed to see them as, as sympathetic figures, not evil figures. So for all those reasons, I'm fascinated by this film. I think it still resonates with audiences today. Which is going to be really interesting when we talk about how much pushback this movie got during production from the military, from from the the, the Eisenhower White House. Certainly, even though the the characters are described as you as you mentioned, it, you wouldn't get that from how much pushback there was. 
Note for the listeners, we're going to cover the original 1959 movie and a bit about the 1957 book by Neville Shute, who was a Australian-British writer who had previously worked as an aeronautical engineer, and including building some weapons, I believe, during World War II. It was also remade in a 2000 movie. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that one. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I have it's not. not great. So it's on the bottom of my list here to check out. This was directed by Stanley Kramer, uh, who's known for some great films like The Defiant Ones, Judgment at Nuremberg, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And it's got quite a cast, uh, a big movie cast. Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner, Anthony Perkins, uh, people who may know as Norman Bates from... Um, Psycho. Psycho, here we go. Uh, and then Fred Astaire. One interesting fact is this is what Stanley Kramer would do to get a movie that was... He would consider maybe a little bit more of a moral tale, a little bit more of a message, a heavy-laden message. He tried to get those was done and filmed and watched by the people that, uh, by having big name people like this. If you got them right. in the, get their butts in the seats and get the money in the bank. And, and Kramer had already had a number of successful films under his belt in, in exactly this mold. Remember, he casts Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier as uh, two guys on the run that are chained to each other in the defiant ones, mm-hmm. exploring racism. But again, big names. Uh, he goes on to, to do uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Again, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, big names to draw the audience in to take on what was then very controversial themes in this case interracial marriage and it works it gets it got the movie done uh it was very i think the book was considered to be quite a big success sold millions of copies uh the movie was a big release it was premiered on six continents at the same time uh, including moscow all around the world it did make a ton of money in the theater i think it had lost around like seven hundred thousand, but it was certainly a movie that's left a huge impact on the public and a huge impact on our community of uh, nuclear people nuclear nonproliferation experts people who work in this field and it had political impact at the time. And if you go up to YouTube to watch this movie, which is where we watched it, you can also see the original trailer, which shows you the you know, prime ministers and heads of government all over the world coming to see this movie. And it had a political impact. Some people believe that it helped spur disarmament talks in the United Nations. This is about the time that the country started talking about the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. So this film may not have been a, a box office bonanza, but it was a very effective political device doing pretty much what Kramer hoped it would do. Yeah, and even just uh, one individual, an, an Australian young anti-nuclear activist and pediatrician, uh, Dr. Helen Caldicott, noted that this was something that frightened her as a youth and inspired her and her career. And uh, so certainly has had its impact. Right. So Helen Caldicott, I think she's 19 when she sees this film. And she goes on to found the Positions for Social Responsibility, was a moving force in the nuclear freeze movement. So this was historically... This may be one of the more impactful films that you're covering in your podcast series. And I'm glad uh, that you're here with it so we can get into the plot here. This is going to be a little bit different than our normal episodes where we'll do a two-hour deep dive on on a plot because sometimes there are movies where people haven't seen them and we cover films that we don't necessarily even recommend you see. But it's interesting (laughs) for people who are interested in in this field. But this is one I think, uh, you know, Joe and I would agree, we should definitely uh, recommend people watch this movie. Yeah, let me me just say to you about this. I mean, it's an old film, right? So it, it has long shots. It feels very European. But it really takes takes you back there. It grounds you in this film. And it's, for me, this was like a, a, a glass of good wine. You taste it, you think this is good. But then a few minutes later, you realize you still have it. It lingers with you. It stays with you. I've been thinking about this, this film for days since I, I, I saw it. And I think others will too. 
Yeah, it's it's like the scene in the movie where there's these two older gentlemen at a country club, and they're talking about how they're not going to have enough time to drink all the port that was ordered for the club, and uh, it was it was very <laughs> irresponsible for the owner of the club to buy this much port, knowing that this kind of nuclear war could happen. So take your time, watch this movie, open up a glass of port, uh, and and really enjoy it. But we'll give you the the quick major points that you'll need to know to follow along here in our discussion. Flash. Motion picture history is made as Stanley Kramer's production of On the Beach opens all over the world in unprecedented six-continent premieres and meets with unprecedented success as critics everywhere hail it as a motion picture milestone. So like I said, it's a 1959 movie. It opens in the far distant future of 1964. We are on board the USS Sawfish, which is in the story, a U.S. nuclear-powered naval submarine commanded by Dwight Towers, which is Gregory Peck, and they order the crew to surface near Australia. And we're not really sure what you know what's up here. It could just be one of those typical uh, 1950s submarine movies. There's quite a number of them. But then we learn, actually, no, this, this is something really serious because there's someone in the lighthouse listening to a radio program that describes that the nuclear war is over. And our scientists disagree as to when radiation will reach Australia. The atomic war has ended, but the Prime Minister reports no proof of survival of human life anywhere except here. And we learn that this is Australia, where they've got about five months before a radioactive fallout cloud reaches them, and pretty much anywhere else in the northern hemisphere of the world is unreachable. No one knows what's going on there. And this is an interesting point, Joe. We don't really know in the movie, we'll kinda, we get a little bit of discussion here and there, but we don't really know a lot of details about what happened with the war. We just know that it happened, and this submarine is one of the few American mil military, American naval vessels that are left. Yeah, in the book, it fills in some of those details. It, it indicates that the war started uh, from a, a Russian-NATO conflict that morphed into a Russia-China war that then begins, and then other countries come in. It involves Egypt, for example, and that the whole thing was sort of a, a case of mistaken identity. Mm -hmm. the, the Egyptians used nuclear weapons to attack the United States using Russian bombers, and the U.S., in the haste to respond, this rush that they feel they have to respond right away, believes that it's Russia that attacked them. They nuke Russia. The whole thing escalates from there. So you do get a few more details in the book. In the movie, it's just left vague. It was a mistake, a misunderstanding that triggers the war, which of course remains the fear that a nuclear war would start not on purpose, but by miscalculation, by accident or madness. And we see some of the people that are affected by that that had nothing to do with this war that was fought in the Northern Hemisphere. We meet an, a, a couple, um, an Australian naval lieutenant, Peter Holmes, who prepares a bottle of milk for his, his newborn baby and a cup of tea for his wife, Mary. And it's very clear they're both putting on a, on a brave face, but they know something's something's coming and they're not really sure what's going to happen. You know, what, what are they going to do with a newborn child uh, that's now here? And particularly milk is always something that is very strong associations with nuclear danger mm -hmm. that are starting to develop with, with strontium-90 that from nuclear testing was starting to get in the news here about very dangerous for milk. I think this really puts the uh, a really human face immediately on, on this, particularly people who were not involved in the actual fighting of the war. 
We see a little bit of the streets of Melbourne. Everything seems to be fine in terms of from a physical damage standpoint, but there aren't any sort of uh, cars really working anymore. Everyone's walking or riding horses or things like that because everything is really breaking down. And we get quick shots here of kind of what's happening. We know that Peter uh, from earlier, he now is assigned to join Dwight Towers on the USS Sawfish, and they're going to go on a two-month mission. They're going to do basically two main things. They're going to go to Alaska, I believe, up the Arctic, uh, and see if radiation might be starting to dissipate. They got this theory, wind and rain and snow might cause the fallout to drop quicker and won't get to Australia. They might be able to make it. And there's also this very mysterious signal. They're getting some kind of a Morse code out of San Diego, I believe. And they're trying to figure out what is this? It's not making any sort of actual message. They're just hearing beep and beeps. And every once in a while, there might be an actual word, but they're not sure. But it could be life. The damnedest thing. Started day before yesterday. Came on again uh, 10 minutes ago, sir. Starts and stops. We've monitored about 60 hours so far. It's weird. You sure it's from San Diego? Within a 100 mile radius, sir. Could be a kid, somebody who doesn't know Morse. Well, we've made two words up to now, sir. Water and connect. But this interests me. That's been an explanation for it, and I'd like to know what it is. How would you like to track it down? I'd like it, sir. Very well, then. They want to go out and check this out. But before they do, we start to get introduced to a few more characters that are really important here. You want to talk a little bit about Maura Davison and how she gets introduced? Well, Morris, the date for for the captain, for Dwight. Peter Holmes decides that Dwight is um, such a sad figure and he's going to be serving with him on this sub mission that he should invite him to the house and they should have a party for him and they should comfort him. His wife is a little leery of this because these northerners, these North Americans <laughs> tend to get very morose. They cry. They, of course, lost their lives. They've lost all their families. Including Dwight, a wife and some kids. Yeah. Yeah. So in Dwight's case, two kids, lives in Connecticut, where I grew up, by the way, near hmm. near, near the New London sub-base. Um, uh, he lives in Mystic, Connecticut. They decide that they need to cheer him up. Let's have a party. And of course, this is this being the time when it is. You don't just have single people come to your parties. You have to match them up. There has to be an equal number of men and women, couples. And for this case, they invite their friend, uh, Mora, to come be his companion and to distract him. And she's a heavy drinker. Uh, in the book, she's sort of depicted as 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 a real alcoholic, like drinking at breakfast. It's not quite that bad in the movie, but some a sort of a fun person, a, a, a hedonist, mm -hmm. says one movie reviewer. And she does her job. She completely entertains him and tries to seduce him. Yeah, but uh, at this dinner party, it's it's not just uh, drinking and having fun. Everybody has the war and the fallout of the war on their minds. There's a big debate, you know, as you have at dinner parties after a nuclear war, people talk about what happened. Was it an accident? Uh, was it miscalculation? Was it a computer vacuum uh, tube that, that messed up? Was it a computer chip? Um, all the things that we worry about uh, during the Cold War and today that might cause some of these problems that aren't direct, you know, purposeful attack with a nuclear force. And there's questions, right? Is it the military who fought the war? Is it the scientists? Are they to blame? They built the bombs. Is it the governments, those who ordered the bombs to be created and used? And one particular scientist is really interesting here. His name is Julian Osborne. He's the character played by Fred Astaire. And he's he's a little bit tipsy, but he's he's letting his thoughts go. You mean to tell me this whole damn war was an accident? No. It wasn't an accident. I didn't say that. It was carefully planned down to the tiniest mechanical and emotional detail. But it was a mistake. In the end, somehow granted the time for examination, we shall find that our so-called civilization was gloriously destroyed 
by a handful of vacuum tubes and transistors. Probably 40. Ah, there you are, Julian, there you are. Now we know where the blame lies, don't we? No, maybe, maybe we were the uh, blind mechanics of disaster, but you don't pin the guilt on the scientists that easily. You might as well pin it on motherhood. Well, it should be pinned on somebody. And you scientists are the likely ones as far as I can see. You built the bomb. You experimented with it, tested it, and exploded it. Now, just a moment, Morris. Thanks to you, chaps, a moment is about all we have. Every man who ever worked on this thing told you what would happen. The scientists signed petition after petition. Julian, please. But nobody listened. There was a choice. It was build the bombs and use them, or risk that the United States, the Soviet Union, and the rest of us would find some way to go on living. Huh. That's wishful thinking if ever I heard it. They signed petitions. They called on the bombs to be destroyed. He gets really upset. He says everyone is doomed because of the fallout, and that kind of puts a really big damper on the on the party here. Uh, but th- did this remind you, Joe, of anyone else in terms of people like some of these scientists that were involved in the Manhattan Project that, that later on, once the war was over, once the justification of having to build a bomb before the German Nazi uh, military did, they had these petitions to try to rein in the arms race and try to not build, say, a hydrogen bomb, those thermonuclear bombs. Absolutely. I mean, this is like Leo Zillard, who was one of the, the physicists physicist on the Manhattan Project who goes on to found the Council for Livable World or people, the, the Los Alamos scientists who went on to found the Federation of American Scientists. I mean, there was enormous agitation after this by the scientists who, remember, invented the bomb as a deterrent. They never thought we would ever use the bomb. It was all supposed to stop Hitler from using the bomb because we thought Hitler was racing to build one. A, a flawed intelligence, as you, as we all now know, he didn't have a bomb. Nobody else had a program. If we didn't have the Manhattan Project, it would have been fine. But these scientists go build the bomb. Then they see it used and they're appalled by what happens. And there's a split in the scientific community. Some go to build more bombs and others are trying to stop them from ever being used again. That's the kind of character Julian represents. He he regrets his role in building the bomb. The more I think about it, he is a stand-in a bit for the author of the book, uh, Neville Shute, who was involved as an aerospace engineer building weapons of war. It wouldn't be that crazy to think that he was a, a Julian's a bit of a stand-in for him. And even though that he signed the petitions that we shouldn't build new weapons, they still have to reconcile with the fact that they were maybe involved in somehow. And it's, you know, that that's true for so many of us. I mean, those of us who work on national security in Washington, we we believe that we're do, working on national security for defensive purposes, to protect the country. And yet the machine that we built, this military industrial complex, you know, causes tremendous harm in the world. And what is our moral responsibility for those of us who are participating in this enterprise? What is our moral responsibility here? That's some of the themes you see resonating in this film. And, and Maura has the same questions. She says, you know, to Dwight after after this particular conversation takes place during the party, you know, she says to Dwight, you know, all I want to know is if everyone was so smart, why didn't they know what would happen? And and Dwight basically responds, you know, to the question of if everyone's so smart, why didn't they know what would happen? Dwight simply says back, they did. All I want to know is if everybody was so smart, why didn't they know what would happen? Yeah, you know, this is actually a key point. And although there isn't, um, you know, elaborate discussion of nuclear theory, except for a couple of moments that we'll discuss later, this is one of them that really summarizes it. Our, Our military understands what happens if you use a nuclear weapon, but they never talk about it. 
It's not in congressional testimony. It's not in their nuclear posture review. They never talk about what happens if you use these bombs. So here's Julian Osborne, the scientist, saying, yes, they did understand. They didn't want to talk about it. They thought they could control it. They thought that their theories, their science, their their command and control mechanisms could control it. And that's the great tragedy of nuclear policy is we we do these things knowing that if we're ever going to use them they could destroy all of human life on the planet and we are have enough hubris to think that that will never happen that we have enough safeguards in place the danger with this is it destroys you know lives lives like Dwight and, and Mora, who start to develop a bit more of a relationship. Now, Dwight has potentially something else he could lose, you know, in his life if this mission north uh, doesn't become a success. And yeah. even another a sadder bit here is is Peter and Mary. They start contemplating what they're going to do, because if Peter goes on this, you know, three-month, four-month-long mission, what happens if the radiation gets there quicker? So he gets some of these pills that he's hearing rumors about. And what what are these pills? They're, they're not iodine tablets. They're not magic radiation pills. They're, they're suicide pills. They would they, they cause, as the doctors say, euphoria. They put people into a coma, and then and then they die. And it's a really sad scene here of, of Peter trying to convince his wife Mary that look, if this happens, you need to take the pill, and before you do, you need to give one to to our our daughter Jennifer. Now this is a special kind of sleeping pill. I had a devil of a time getting them, but I wanted you to have them on hand and to make sure you knew how to use them. What happens with the radiation is that you get you get ill. You start feeling sick, and then you are sick. You can't keep anything down. You may feel better for a while, but, but it always comes back. And this cures it. Darling, you know nothing cures it. This ends it. But Peter, however ill I was, I couldn't do that. Oh, who'd look after Jennifer? Jenny will get it, too. You're not trying to tell me you want me to kill Jennifer. Mary, don't be an idiot. Supposing you get it first, what are you going to do then? Struggle on by yourself until you drop? Jenny might live for days and be sick and helpless in her crib with you dead on the floor beside her. Don't you see that? Don't you see it? Yeah. I mean, this is one of the strengths of the film, actually. It doesn't, it's not a long diatribe on nuclear theory. It's talking about the consequences of nuclear theory, of of how you have to confront this, that it it doesn't matter whether you're responsible for it or not, whether you should have done something earlier or not. Here you are. And now your choice is, is how are you going to manage your death? It's a deep existential uh, moment in the film as they discuss this. It's another one of those uh, multiple meetings of the title of of the movie and the book on the beach. Kind of what, where where do you do a lot of reflections? You know, but when you're walking on the beach, where do you do the waiting in this movie for the radiation to come? But on the beach, and there's lots of those examples, and it's, I think it really shows that this movie is very contemplative and something that everyone should check out. Right. So, if, or if the if the if the ocean is a metaphor for eternity, I mean, here you are on the edge of eternity. You're you know, you're you're about to end your life and you're about to go into the larger whatever you think awaits you after death and and this is what this is your step this is your final moments 
one of the, the things, the steps that they do take is onto the submarine, onto the USS Sawfish, and they go north. They go to the Arctic Circle. They go to do some radiation readings, hoping that everything might be okay. They bring Julian on board the sub because he's a he's a radiation expert and can, and can talk to people about what's going on. Unfortunately, the radiation levels here are even hotter than elsewhere in the Pacific, which means, according to everyone there, things are getting bad, and it's not going to dissipate before it hits Australia. And on the way back south, going to go check out this, this potential, you know, more code signal, one of the scenes I think is very important to kind of stop and do a little bit of, of conversation about is the USS Sawfish. It takes a second to look through its periscope at San Francisco. One of the scenes I think is very, very powerful is when they take a second to look. They don't see destruction. They don't see the Golden Gate Bridge destroyed. They don't see any of the buildings destroyed. They just see everything empty as if mm-hmm. people you know, left the city streets to go somewhere else. And it's clear at a certain point that the city is empty and devoid of life. It's because people decided they wanted to die of radiation sickness, not in the streets, but in the quiet and privacy of their homes, which I, I think is a very powerful scene, particularly every t- every moment that one of the crew members takes, everyone takes a turn and looks into the periscope. Even one of the crew members uh, who's from San Francisco, his parents w- were there when the war started, even he's allowed a chance to, ch- to have a second to look. Uh, you find out later that he actually escapes the submarine, p- swims to shore, uh, and then you f- we see him kind of waiting, uh, fishing, waiting for the radiation sickness to hit as the submarine leaves because he's not going to be able to get back on the boat. Uh, he's kind of received too much of a dose. What did you think about this scene here in San Francisco, Joe? Well, again, they're, they're making it personal. The sailor is the every person. You know, how would you respond to this, especially if you're home now? This is his home. In the in the book, it, this whole scene plays out in Seattle, but it's the same scenario. The Kramer is very faithful to the, the book here. The sailor's making a decision. Look, he knows he's going to die. It is coming. Or as I say, we all know we're going to die. Now we just know when we're going to die. And he decides he wants to die at home. And he wants he doesn't want to go in the sub anymore. And in some ways, it's foreshadowing the end of the movie right. when the entire sub crew makes this uh, d- decision. And it's it's poignant. It's it's human. The commander is not irate that he broke protocol. He's very sympathetic to him. He leaves him in peace, knowing that in a day or two, he's going to have the symptoms of radiation poisoning will start getting sick. And his final question to him is, you know, do you do you want a, a suicide pill? And the guy says, no, I got <laughs> I got 200 pharmacies to choose from here. I'll find something. Yeah, it's a it's a very powerful scene, and it's one of the ones that I when I think about this movie, I think about that guy sitting on the boat uh, yeah. by himself uh, fishing. Hopefully, he caught something before uh, he caught the radiation sickness. I think one of the other really powerful scenes about this in this particular kind of run of the film is back aboard the submarine. Everyone is drinking, they're having dinner, and they're having this debate about kind of what how did the war might have started. And this is one that I think is really important. Let me correct you there. This is a U.S. submarine. There was no drinking on board. So no one is drinking. Remember <laughs> at the end? That's scene, right. They, they say at some point, can you find something for Julia? That, that's yeah, yeah, very yeah. true. So nobody's drinking. This is a very straight-laced American military. By the way, this is 1959. So the U.S. military is still portrayed in very favorable uh, terms. These are people who are still like the heroes of World War II. And, and everything's by the book. There's no dissent within the military. There's no mm-hmm. blame of the military. These guys are are the good guys. And you see that play in a very frank and honest discussion. Now that's that's perfectly fair. And that it's the Australian that kind of breaks protocol here. And uh, when they when they ask him kind of what should be blamed, who should be blamed, he jokes, uh, you know, Julian Osborne says that it was Albert Einstein. He's the one to blame. He's the one who started the war. 
uh, which is, you know, a fun little reference to him having some support, uh, his, you know, given his name, his very prominent name to the, the original Bond project. Uh, but I think this is a, a great, a great scene to delve into because Fred Astaire, he really shows his, his acting chops. And I think one of the best monologues of the movie. Who would ever have believed that human beings would be stupid enough to blow themselves off the face of the earth? The trouble with you is you want a simple answer. There isn't any. The war started when people accepted the idiotic principle that peace could be maintained by arranging to defend themselves with weapons they couldn't possibly use without committing suicide. Everybody had an atomic bomb and counter-bombs and counter-counter-bombs. The devices outgrew us. We couldn't control them. I know. I helped build them. God help me. Somewhere, some poor bloke probably looked at a radar screen and thought he saw something knew that if he hesitated one thousandth of a second, his own country would be wiped off the map. So, so he pushed the button and, and the world went crazy. And, and... And then I think the way that they go through this is so is so really interesting. Talking about how you know we we built the bombs, uh, we thought that we'd be able to control them. These were things that we we had built up. But then he describes a little scenario. He has no idea whether or not that's actually happened. You know, the scenario he says where some poor bloke probably saw something on a radar screen. He thought he saw something else. He knew that if he hesitated a thousandth of a second, his country would be wiped off the map. So he pushed a button, and then the whole world went crazy. This certainly is drawing from even if this didn't happen as much, you know in the public's mind and in public information by the time this movie was uh, filmed and by the time the book was written there's lots of examples right joe throughout the cold war lots of nuclear accidents near misses uh and then some breakdowns and deterrence this is certainly draws on something that's that's true yeah yeah this is so interesting because this is a 1959 film a 1957 book and you gotta remember the technology we had here we still were not talking primarily about missiles there was right. some but sputnik had just been launched in 57 right right so we have a few missiles we haven't even had the debate yet of the kennedy nixon race where kennedy says there's a missile gap we don't have kennedy's speech at the un where he says we we all live under this nuclear sword of damocles that can be cut at any minute by by miscalculation accident or madness you know we don't even have that yet but he's talking about this here and we're talking about bombers primarily like we do in failsafe another mm -hmm. big epic turning point movie of the time we're talking about bombers and this takes place over days and weeks actually uh in the book it's it's described as a 37 day war that happens um slowly over time but it's the same core theory that we're talking about even now and it's i find this relevant because there's a, a lot of movement among nuclear security experts both my generation tim and yours who are questioning the theory of deterrence. I mean, really in a profound way now, talking about, uh, about the validity of just what he says. The idiotic principle, says Fred Astaire, the idiotic principle that peace could be maintained by arranging to defend themselves with weapons they couldn't possibly use without committing suicide. That is our nuclear policy. That is what we believe, that the threat of mutual suicide is so strong that it will prevent anybody from attacking us, but it completely negates the miscalculation, mm -hmm. the accident, and as we've just seen with our former president, the madness. 
And so is this worth it? Is this, is this theory still, still valid? And this is where, where Fred Astaire, Julian, goes right into it. He takes us directly into this idea of a miscalculation. He looks at the radar screen, thought he saw something, knew if he hesitated, you know, so he pushes the button. And in the, the book, it elaborates that they miscalculated. They, these Egyptians <laughs> used Russian bombers to attack us. We believe it's the Russians. It's that miscalculation that, that starts the war. It's the same kind of miscalculation that could happen now, except of course now it's worse because here we're just talking about sort of honest mistakes. Now in the era of cyber warfare, you could have somebody who's penetrated your system Who's, it's, it's, it's not just an accident like we've had in the past, you were saying, Tim, mm-hmm. where we accidentally put training tapes in and the big board lights up and everybody thinks we're actually under attack or a radar uh, mistakes a rising moon or for an ICBM or a flock of geese for a Soviet uh, a bomber raid, all of which happened, all of which happened, or a computer chip fails and we think we're under attack, all of which happened. No, now in this era, we're talking about somebody with cyber warfare capabilities penetrating our command and control system and doing one of two things, either either paralyzing our system, so when we push the button, nothing happens, or taking control of our systems so that when we don't push the button, something happens. This is why so many people are saying that the threats of nuclear war are actually some ways greater now than they were during the Cold War, because we have this intersection of dangerous new technologies that are coming in on top of the already dangerous nuclear weapons and the theory of deterrence that justifies their existence. And that's one of the things that I I try to get out as much as possible anytime we cover these movies that came out during the Cold War, that this is not a documentary that you can say, well, now at the end of the documentary, the problem is over. We fixed it. We did the things we need to do. And the the threat that we describe of this quaint time period or or, moment in time is now gone. These are things that still are concerning for us today. Um, You know, you talked about the the fact that the Egyptians in the book uh, had used Soviet bombers and Soviet weapon, you know, designs made the United States think that the Soviet Union was attacking, you know, that. What reminded me of that was the the Norwegian uh, rocket incident, which was a, a, a weather satellite being launched, but it gave off this very similar signals to uh, an ICBM, and the Soviet Union, you know, was no longer even around anymore when this happened. This was uh, right, nineteen ninety four. Yeah, ninety four. So this this caused uh, a lot of uh, f- you know crazy movement. Uh, it, it caused the the Chaget, which is the the Russian. Uh, nuclear football to get activated and for the first time and very scary and, and those are the kinds of miscalculations in addition to and that was simply an accident in addition to any of the other more purposeful you know misinformation things you described and you know talking here again about like misinformation and not knowing all the facts when the submarine gets to, uh, to san diego they finally send a crew member they put him in a hazmat suit they say you have to, you know two hours i think they say uh to go find the signal and get back before your suit's gonna fail and you're not gonna have enough uh, protection against the radiation you know they're still hoping maybe they're someone out there alive. Maybe there's something still to hope for the future. But it, it turns out what happens, it's a radio room at an oil refinery. And there's a window shade that got caught up on a, a glass Coke bottle. And that is every time the wind blows, uh, you know, no pun, uh, nuke movie pun intended. When the <laughs> wind blows, it causes the bottle to hit the Morse code signal. And because they happen to leave, no one turned off the power generators, there's a signal. And then clearly no one's there. It's the room is empty and they shut everything off and get back on the submarine. Wind. Window shade tugging on a Coke bottle. (laughs) 
it's very clear. Nothing is going to be able to be done to stop this. It's happening. When they're back in Australia, Mora and Dwight, they start to develop a little bit more of their romantic relationship. They go fishing together. Puritanism. This is Neil Schutte, the author of the book, was very upset with Stanley Kramer for exactly this. Because in his book, the submarine commander, Dwight, is loyal to his dead wife and kids. And in fact, he acts as if they're still alive. It's the only way he can cope. He buys a fishing pole, I think, for his kid at one point. Right. He's still buying gifts to bring back to them in Mystic. And in the movie, Kramer has them consummate their relationship. Of course, this is 1959. It's very chaste. It's all off screen. You see a passionate kiss and that's about it. You know, uh, so, but Shuti was 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 outraged at this. He sort of way broke with Kramer over this, over the way he's portraying the, uh, the captain. And Kramer's defense is, look, man, this is a two hour movie yeah. about, about the end of the world. We have to to have some romance in here and i think he's right very funny that the line there is like we're okay to show suicide pills and the end of the world but gosh forbid if someone has a a, a quasi affair with a potentially what uh, is it adultery like, if your wife is dead yeah that's what neil's uh, point of view there that's right <laughs> yeah well and some people have different reactions to the understanding of their fate uh, i think there's some interesting ones here jillian osborne always wanted to race a ferrari in, in a big race so he joins the australian grand prix and his he buys a ferrari fixes it up goes on the race and everyone else is just driving like they're maniacs basically because they've got nothing else to lose they'd rather die in, in a big car chase and a big car uh, crash so he wins the, the australian grand prix and then the, one of the scenes we see him at the end is he, uh, you know, commits suicide by running his car in an engine uh, and gets CO2 poisoning. So he, that's his way of going out. Yeah, yeah. But just by the way, they throw they throw this car race in there. It's in the movie, too. And, it, and so it's it's not a, a plot device, but it's it's, it's a little out Silly. of the blue here. But but it's exciting. I mean, there's some very big explosions. There are at least, I don't know, 10 cars crash. It reminded me of right before we were we're recording this. They ran the Daytona 500 on Valentine's Day, and there was a 17 car crack up. <laughs> you know, so it's it's a little bit of excitement for the audience to just keep everybody awake during this two hour and 13 minute. I think it is. Yeah. Film. It's one of those, if you watch the trailer for this movie, very early in the trailer, you see these car chases and things. And I go, this is not what this movie is, but okay. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> they show you the big explosion. They go, oh, love and explosions. Yeah, I want to go see this movie. <laughs> well, what, what they don't show you is uh, the more depressing stuff, which is uh, Mary and, and Peter very clear that they took the pills. Uh, they both come to accept their, their fate and they take the pills and... Uh, that's kind of their way of avoiding, you know, the radiation damage. Uh, I think a very powerful scene. It's an outdoor religious ceremony. It's a very large crowd convened by the Salvation Army under a banner that says, there is still time, brother. And the speaker is asking for everyone to give forgiveness uh, before things get really bad. And that's when you start to see in the background people passing out these pills uh, these suicide pills. And then a couple, you know, not very much longer, a couple days later, the same thing is happening again, but the crowd is what, maybe a third? Oh, even less. Yeah, it's it's a pathetic remnants of the, the, the throng that was there earlier in the film. And as you as you kind of, you know, hinted at, we don't see what happens to, to Mora. We can kind of get a sense, you know, we know, we know what happens to her in the book, but what happens mm -hmm. with Dwight and, and Mora, you think maybe they are going to have a chance to kind of spend a little bit more time together after their their very um, controversial uh, consummation. But what happens is Dwight's crew on the submarine, on the USS Sawfish, they all vote just to decide that they would like to go back to Connecticut. They like to go back to the United States. And even though they know this is how they'll die, but this is on their own terms. And Dwight 
agrees. He says, I'm not just going to let this crew go without me. He gets on the submarine and one of the last shots is of Moira kind of watching this on a cliff side, you know, watching the submarine go off in the distance. And, and I think right in the, in the book, you actually see her taking her pill, uh, her suicide pill with some brandy and uh, watching um, Dwight, instead of him going back home, they all decide to scuttle the ship because yes. they can't let the ship go into the hands of someone, but they decide that's kind of how they're going to go about. So they scuttle the ship and that's how they meet their end. It's very, it's, yeah, it's a series of very uh, difficult shots. And the last one in particular is Melbourne. It's empty, similar to what we saw earlier with San Francisco. Uh, you would assume at this point, the radiation is hit and uh, no one, no one's left. And they're the banner from earlier, the one that says there's still time, brother, is still there flapping in the wind, but no one's there to, in the movie to listen. But I think it's very clear that the message was not for the people of Melbourne, but for those still watching the movie. Ends a bit on a hopeful note for us, at least watching, hopefully that we can do what we can to not let this become a reality. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, this this movie is played out like, uh, uh, you know, war games about stopping nuclear terrorism. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done any of these, but in all the games I've played, you know, you, you, you try to stop a terrorist from blowing up a nuclear device in New York or Washington. And of course, you fail because mm-hmm. it's, it's much easier for a terrorist to do this than it is for us to stop it. But the point of the war game is to say, well, what should we have done? How could we have stopped this previously? What could we have done in our policies now to stop that from ever happening in reality? And that's Kramer's message, right? There's still time, brother. You can do something about it. And it plays over this very sad and poignant ending. Most of us, if, if we had to choose between love and ending our lives in a, in a loving embrace with someone we loved or going on a submarine with a <laughs> bunch of men <laughs> to your certain death, we would have chosen love. But Dwight chooses duty over love. And so that's one of the choices, duty over love. He wants to stay but he decides he has a duty to the crew. And in some ways, Kramer's sort of hitting on that. Look what happens, you know, hmm. when you do that, when we all just do our duty. And he's, I, I, when I saw the ending, I was reminded of Mora's comments at the end of the party. Didn't they understand what was going to happen? You know, if they had these bombs, it's, oh, no, we understood. She all, she's then furthers that discussion. Just, but, but, you know, it's basically, it's not our fault. But it's unfair. It's unfair because I didn't do anything. And nobody I know did anything. And that has a double meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like trying to interpret what's going on in WandaVision. You know, <laughs> what are the double meanings of, this, of the, the dialogue here? Well, one meaning is it's not our fault. But the other meaning is we didn't do anything to stop it. We didn't do anything. And so his message at the end is, is to the people watching it. You know, do something about this. There's still time brother and uh, that is definitely a stanley kramer movie that's how he he rolls with his films and i think um it's fascinating to watch now because you talk about this movie being a time capsule it's definitely also a time capsule in how movies were made in terms of how movies end with the big i think it's like a big like crashing sound while the banner's there so it's like if you didn't get what we were saying here it is You know, that was my one big criticism movie. I real I like the score. The score is extremely poignant. Basically, the score is variations of Walsing Matilda, mm-hmm. which is one of the most evocative, poignant uh, melodies and songs of all time. And they use it throughout the movie and, and they play it again at the end. And they 
And then he closes with this big crash over that. It was just jarring and overly dramatic. And I, I, I didn't like the feeling it left me. And a number, number of the critics talked about the movie ending. What was the phrase? Like a leaden shroud? <laughs> yeah. He- heavily laden shroud. That's how the movie is done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was... That's it. If you can turn the volume down at the end of the movie, I think you'll like the ending a little better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll just uh, next time I show it to someone, I'll just kind of mute that at the very end. Um, no, Walter Matilda was a great motif to play throughout this because if you change, if you just focus on certain lyrics, it's very haunting. But mm-hmm. it depends if you if you sing it in a very you know happy way, it's very different. It's a great one that could be used. Uh, the end of the TV show. I don't know if you watch Deadwood on HBO. It's one of my favorite shows. They um they end as well with that song. Uh, being played, uh-huh. so I I had I had to think about that when I was watching this movie. So there's a few other you know nuclear plot stuff I think it's really worth getting into in the little bit of time we have left here. Uh, one thing that people ask me a lot every time I have a conversation about uh, this movie is is the science behind the radioactive fallout cloud because I think this sometimes is a bit of a holdup for people and it was something that a lot of the the official critics the the military um, advisors who didn't want this movie to be released people at the Pentagon or you know others that were not particularly happy with this message that deterrence could fail or just in general these days people wonder is this something that could actually happen you know could there be a, a nuclear war in the north and literally everywhere around the world is destroyed and I think it's really interesting it's certainly a very shocking plot for for its time these these things were in people's minds with nuclear testing in the atmosphere we got the castle bravo incident in 1954 uh, so right around that time period when when the book was being written and this still was not a very common occurrence though in hollywood movies it's kind of big things where humanity would be destroyed by weapons you know created and used by the united states so it's very 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 controversial but i think it's interesting because the the bombs in, in the movie aren't particularly described to be anything different than what we normally would have mm-hmm. in the arsenal. In in the in the book, they're described to be cobalt laced, mm-hmm. uh, cobalt salted bombs. And I think it's is really interesting because this this comes up a lot in other uh, nuclear science fiction or nuclear w- plot films. And this I think it's worth talking about a little bit here because could there be a nuclear war that causes radioactive fallout around the world? Maybe, but the science there is not completely confirmed on it. But I know you have a lot of thoughts on, you know, nuclear winter, which is a distinct from, you know, radioactive fallout that would go around the world. So I just want to mention here a little bit about cobalt bombs, because they discuss this in the book as what the, the weapon designers have been created. Because again, this is a, a movie that takes place a little bit further into the future. Same thing with the book, took place a little bit in the future. So, so these were things that, that Leo Szilard, who you mentioned earlier, he had talked about cobalt bombs back in 1950 and the idea here is you take a normal, you know, normal thermonuclear bomb, you lace the the, the warhead uh, with some cobalt metal, and then when there's an explosion, the fusion reaction produces a lot of neutrons. Those will transmute the cobalt into cobalt-60. Mm-hmm. And the unique thing about cobalt-60 is it has a pretty long half-life of 5.7 years. You could actually create your bomb so that there's more radiation than there is blast damage. So you could potentially have a bomb that destroys and kills people with, with the radioactivity over a certain amount of time. But, you know, in 5.7 years, maybe you can go and claim that territory. What Leo Salar was talking about was theoretically, what if we created a couple of these bombs and even without, uh, you know, blast damage into cities being destroyed, it's still pretty pretty dangerous. So it was more of like a theoretical idea, but there were some examples of people wanting to use these bombs and to develop them. They never were actually built or deployed, but you have some examples here of someone that wanted to use these. Yes, 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 we do. So let's just do a little bit of the science. Some of the materials in the weapons have very long half-lives. 
half-life is basically yeah. during this period, half of the material would decay into non-radioactive substances. And then over the remaining period, another half of the remaining material will decay, et cetera, et cetera. So plutonium has a half-life of 26,000 years. What that means is it lasts for a long, long time, but it's not that radioactive. It's not that deadly. Whereas some of the fission materials produced in the explosion have very, very short half-lives and they're intensely radioactive, intense uh, gamma radiation. And that's what kills most people. But those tend to have half-lives of weeks, you know, so after, and that's why fallout shelters will work. If you can stay underground for a week or so, when you would come back up, most of the radiation would have dissipated. So cobalt is in the middle. So as you say, 5.7 years. So that's a long time. And then but half of it would be gone. Well, then the other half would be gone. So about 20 years in, the cobalt would have dissipated. And so some military commanders thought that this was the perfect weapon because you could kill people with radiation, but the nuclear explosion wouldn't have devastated the buildings, the infrastructure. And so MacArthur, General MacArthur, when he was commanding U.S. troops in Korea, for example, proposed using 60 cobalt bombs to lay down a radioactive belt between North Korea and what's now North Korea and China to prevent the Chinese from coming in. It was actually one of the reasons that uh, Truman ended up firing MacArthur. And if you just Google MacArthur cobalt, you'll come up with the whole story about this, a truly insane idea. And so insane that despite all the crazy things the United States and other countries have done, we've never built cobalt bombs. Nobody's ever actually done it. That was the worry. And when Leo Zillard was talking about this in 1950, he was showing Remember, so the bomb had just been around by about four or five years by that point. And he's saying, look, this is going to get worse. Other technologies will come in on top of the nuclear threat to make these already terrible weapons even more terrible. And of course, a few years after he made this, we developed the hydrogen bomb, which is many times more powerful than the, the fission bombs, the atomic bombs. And other technologies have indeed come on, ICBMs, et cetera, now cyber war, to make this nuclear threat even more dangerous than it is uh, and that we so clearly saw and tragically saw demonstrated in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And and this was certainly not only a concern for, for Leo and, and the people that were concerned about the bomb that were former weapon scientists. This was something that was really a big worry within the Australia, within the public. Because oh, yeah. in the 1950s, the, the U.S. and the U.K., particularly the, the U.K., started doing nuclear tests in Australia um, yes. at a, a nuclear test site there, the Marilinga's test site. And when they decided to do their first test, obviously this is something that's going to be in the news and uh, re news reports for the public because they're going to start testing nuclear weapons on, on site here. That's pretty interesting for for, for the public. To, it's a newswor newsworthy item. There were lots of unconfirmed reports that maybe the first test at this site would be a cobalt bomb. Immediately mm -hmm. they tried to put out re some reports uh, that uh, the, the official reports that said, no, we're not going to do this. It's not going to be a cobalt bomb. But even those news reports uh, were always included a couple quotes, including some from Albert Einstein that talked about how bad cobalt bombs would be, that they would be sufficient to extinguish life from the earth, uh, capable of wiping human life from the globe, most dangerous lasting nuclear explosive ever invented. So you would say it's not going to be the test, but look how bad cobalt bombs are. So you combine these things together, you know, no doubt in my mind, at least, that this was something that influenced the plot of this particular film. Um, you find cobalt and also, the, you know, of the book. Yeah, you see, you find cobalt bombs a lot in other stuff. You've you mentioned Dr. Strangelove earlier. They kind of invent their own bomb here, the cobalt thorium G. Oh, yes. For the doomsday machine. <laughs> yes. Yep. You've obviously never heard of cobalt thorium G. Well, what about it? Cobalt thorium G has a radioactive half-life of 93 years. 
if you take, say, 50 H-bombs in the 100 megaton range and jacket them with cabal thorium G, when they are exploded, they will produce a doomsday shroud. It's also a plot point in the very interesting but not necessarily great movie, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Uh, there's a cobalt bomb there. It's also in, in Goldfinger, the James Bond film. Right. Goldfinger makes a passing reference to his cobalt bomb. Yes, that's right. As you mentioned, it's never been developed, so it's not something that we really have to worry about. What we do have to worry about is is global nuclear winter, because that's certainly more of a bigger concern. But it's harder plot to show well, in a movie in 1959. But you want to talk a little bit about this? I, is certainly... I, I do. So so let's let's talk about the science here. So could, could radioactivity distinguish all life on Earth? Well, well, if, hey, man, if Albert Einstein said it, I mean, who am I <laughs> to, to disagree? But it would be really hard to do, frankly. And there's a lot of interesting science here. For example, it's true that a nuclear war in the Northern Hemisphere, the radioactivity would stay in the Northern Hemisphere because winds do not cross the equator. Kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And it would take some time because it turns out they, as the Earth tilts, you go through the seasons, the weather patterns shift, some of the weather does cross the equator, some of that radioactivity would come down, but that helps explain why it would take a long time. All that is true. And in the book, by the way, it describes it in much more detail. So he you mentions get, like get New Zealand and South Africa and a few other places would be have been known to be okay. Like there are yes, reports yes. that those, there are still people alive there, but the, the movie simplifies it. As again, the scientist uh, uh, Julian Osborne says when somebody says, you know, what these weapons could destroy the earth. And he says, no, n- not the earth. The earth will be fine. It's us that will be gone. And that's true. You know, we often talk about blowing up the planet. Well, you can't actually blow up the planet. But if you look about how many weapons it would take to destroy, so let's say, the all u- human life in the United States, if you um, Google effects of nuclear war, you will quickly come up to an ACTA study done, the Arms Control Disarmament Agency, and they estimated about 1,000 large thermonuclear devices used in the United States would destroy most life in the United States. And I think that's that's accurate. But mm-hmm. the whole thing, the combination of blast and, and fire and, of course, radioactivity would destroy most life. Could you kill all life on Earth from nuclear explosions and radioactivity? Probably not. But what about, Probably what about not. nuclear winter? That's certainly But that's here's that, where yeah. you get and then and this is what's changed. If you were doing this now. You would be talking this would be a nuclear winter film. Because it's the climate science was still very primitive in the 50s and 60s it, it, until very recently, actually. But now with the climate science we know we have and the and the, the supercomputers that we use to calculate this, we now know. And one of our colleagues, uh, Alan Robach, is working on a big multi-year study of, of this that as few as a hundred nuclear weapons used in a nuclear war between India and Pakistan in South Asia would uh, would burn enough. Uh, material in the densely populated cities of South Asia, that it would put smoke and particulates in the atmosphere that would cover the earth in a shroud for two to three years, dropping global temperatures about two or three degrees. And before you think this might be a, a solution to global warming, you drop global temperatures two or three degrees and you kill about 40% of the food crops in the world. And you do that and you unleash a famine that's probably going to kill a, a billion people, scientists calculate. You do that and you've introduced an instability into human civilization that probably 
brings about the collapse of human civilization as we know it. As by the way, if you study the fall of civilizations, an increasingly popular topic these days, you will see that quite often climate change and food scarcity triggers the collapse of civilizations. And we now have in our, our, our hands the ability to change the Earth's climate either slowly over decades and centuries as we're doing with industrial pollutants or overnight as we would do with a, even a small nuclear war. So yes, nuclear weapons, even a relatively small amount of 100 or so, remember, we have about 6,000 nuclear weapons. Russia has about 6,000 nuclear weapons. India and Pakistan have about 300 total between them. Even 100 nuclear weapons could change the climate and kill billions of people and cause the collapse of civilization. Could you actually get the scenario like on the beach where all human life quietly dies, orderly, lined up, everybody, no riots? Uh, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. But as a, a sort of a simplification of the threat, uh, an artistic presentation of the threat You'd have to say that this that this is essentially accurate. If you want a p realistic portrayal of nuclear winter and what it, how it breaks down civilization, you watch Threads and you try to uh, deal with with that movie. That's a, a film that des describes what happens over 13 years of a nuclear war in the United Kingdom. Uh, it's it's very devastating and very difficult to get through. But I think as you really, you, you nailed it here, you know, this movie cares a little bit less about the science of the portrayal of, of radioactivity because it is, I think, honestly, more of like an allegorical uh, story or more of in poetry of, you know, here's what characters are responding to their fates. You know, they, they reflect, they respond, they ultimately kind of accept their fate that this is going to end up happening. Uh, and I think this is important because while you're right that, you know, nuclear winter would be a concern, but it wouldn't look this way and the fallout uh, wouldn't be as radioactive and, and for, for people in Australia, it, it's, it's trying to show like what we should be concerned about is we have time now. We have time to be able to kind of deal with some of these issues before this kind of war, you know, ends up happening. But if we're not going to do anything about it, we're all basically still sitting and reflecting on, on our, our fate. It just happens to be maybe a little bit longer than the people in this film have. So I think this is one of those movies where if I was really being super critical about it, I would say, well, this has never really happened. But I don't think the movie's trying to be that accurate. It's trying to, you know, scare mm -hmm. people into into showing them how this could happen. And this is what even people who were in the movie, like Ava Gardner, you know, she mentioned this. She says after she saw the movie, she said it's it's a fictional scenario. But my God, everyone in the cast and crew knew a nuclear war could happen. I was proud of being part of this film, proud of what it said. And I think that is one of the reasons why I'm glad you uh, really finally got me to do this particular movie. It's been a while. Uh, I've been nervous to cover it because it's hard to to kind of get through it. It's a really important one to be able to talk about. Yeah. It almost didn't happen. The The U.S. Navy, the Eisenhower administration at the time really fought against this movie from being made. And funny enough, they didn't really care that much about the book, but they knew book is different than a film. Film has much more of a visceral, visual kind of impact on people. And according to the book by Joyce Evans, which is called uh, Celluloid, Mushroom Clouds, Hollywood, and the Atomic Bomb, every studio in the 50s and the 60s normally would, you would ask the Pentagon for help uh, for making your movie about war. The Pentagon would get script approval, and, and then the, the Hollywood would be able to get access to the cool toys that can actually make their movie look realistic. Oh, when the Pentagon was asked for this film, they said no. 
Uh, they were they wanted to be able to cut most of the plot. They didn't want the idea that nuclear deterrence could break down. They didn't like the fact that it wasn't clear who started the war. They didn't want the United States to be the one to look like maybe they had some hand, you know, in, in starting this. So this was one of those things that led Kramer, you know, he said, uh, I needed a, a nuclear atomic submarine for the film, but the Pentagon told me, no, your story says an atomic war would wipe out the world, and that isn't so. Only about 500 million people would be killed. Yeah. <laughs> and I told them that's the closest I would ever like to get to a total wipeout. So we we yeah. wouldn't change the script, so we didn't get the atomic sub. Yes, right. I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must, yeah. right? But it's not everybody. It's only 500 million. Yeah, right, right. I mean, that's barely even you know a couple of mega deaths. So this is, I think, it's what's so fascinating. They they were able to get some military props. They got a diesel sub from the Australian Navy, which is you know nice for them to to, be able to help out with that. It is certainly interesting because even the Eisenhower administration kind of had a lot of pushback on this. I did not know about this until I started to do research for this. But there was even a cabinet level meeting. Uh, in December 1959. Oh, tell me about this. There was a cabinet level meeting in 1959 that was headed up by uh, Richard Nixon, who was vice president at the time. And they got together to talk about what they should do about this film because it was going to be a big release. You know, six six continents, uh, 18 theaters around the world at the same time, which was a big release uh, back then. And it got to the point where they were debating what should they should do about this. And the chief of the U.S. information agency, he was uh, so concerned by this. He said that the, the, quote, unprecedented publicity given to the movie meant that we should care that the government officials do not give support to an erroneous themes developed in the film. This official even said that the government's primary concern was that there was this resigned, defeatist nature in the film's treatment of global thermonuclear war. Like, <laughs> nothing we can do about this. This is so bad, and we're just kind of let this happen, but that's not what they wanted to do. And they thought that they could handle these kinds of issues. And it even got to the point where uh, you mentioned, you know, fallout shelters earlier, mm. where the guy who was heading up the country's civil defense program, you know, trying to build shelters, encourage people to prepare because they could they could respond if you were prepared you can deal with the fallout for these kind of bombs they said quote that the film was regarded as something very harmful because it produced a feeling of utter hopelessness thus undermining his efforts to encourage preparedness on the part of all citizens mm. it was one of those movies that would cut against the the right. idea that nuclear war could be survived and therefore maybe you won't if you think your solution to this is uh, either to get on a submarine and, and hide out for a while or to take a poison pill and not deal with uh civil defense, yeah. then maybe we won't be supporting the, the war effort as much. Let, let me just talk about this for a minute um, on two aspects. One, I was nine years old when this movie came out. So I'm a generation ahead of you. So this was these 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 books, these movies. My parents were reading these. In fact, um, shortly thereafter, Failsafe came out. And this was my first memory hmm. of my exposure to nuclear weapons was reading the serialized version of Failsafe in the Saturday Evening Post, Wow, which doesn't exist anymore, <laughs> but by the way, plays a role in the book, the Saturday Evening Post. So I remember sitting on my living room floor reading Failsafe, another profoundly sad, intensely personal uh, uh, nuclear tragedy. And these things, these movies, these books, they moved public opinion, right? If we had a movie like On the Beach or a book like On the Beach now, we would love it in our field. Who's writing this book? Who's doing this movie? You know, the closest you come is probably uh, Eric Schlosser with uh, Command and Control, which was made into a uh, PBS movie uh, and a, had a book that had a lot of circulation and a lot of policymakers read, but nothing like this, mm -hmm. right? Nothing like this. But these things were happening then. This was a critical time in public opinion. And here's our military, this is the second point, deciding that they don't like this theme. 
that this is not helpful to the military mission, to the image of the military, to U.S. national security policy. And you got to say, well, why not? What's going on here? What, what values do they have? Shouldn't our government be supporting films that oppose nuclear war? Shouldn't it be our position that a nuclear war can never be won and should never be fought, as Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev said? Isn't that what our government policy should be? So when you have a movie like this that's showing that any use of nuclear weapons is suicidal, isn't that a good message for the government? But it isn't. That Mm -hmm. isn't how the military thinks. Because when you get right down to it, the military doesn't want to support films that questions their weapons, their strategy their tactics, even if there's a greater good to be served, even if there's a valid moral point to be made, because they believe that their strategy and tactics work. And I think it gets actually a little sicker than that. Because when you get up close and personal with nuclear commanders and the, the, the guys who had the Global Strike Command or STRATCOM, and you look at their ethos, and you look at their slogans, and you look at their symbols, you look at their films, you look at their Twitter thread, and these guys promote nuclear weapons. They believe, and, and you, they, they make six secretaries of defense. We'll see if Austin follows this mode. Go out to Grand Forks. Go out to Omaha and, and pro- proclaim that nuclear weapons are the backbone of American national security policy, the foundation, our essential weapons, when, of course, this is the opposite of what's true. Nuclear weapons are not our ultimate security. They are our ultimate threat. But the military is so wed to the weapons, to the missions, to the bases, that that's what they defend. And they've lost all sight of the, of the goal, which is to preserve our society, preserve our civilization, preserve our morality. You know, there's a reason that Pope Francis says nuclear weapons are immoral, that the possession of nuclear weapons, just the possession, of them is immoral and is not justified by anything, including deterrence. It is immoral to threaten the mass extinction of innocent men, women, and children in the name of defense of our country. That's what the Pope says. Why doesn't our, you know, why doesn't our military embrace this? Well, that's a whole other yeah. subject. That's a whole other subject. But it's about money. It's about contracts. It's about mission. It's not about what's best for the country. And this was all of the debates that they were having behind the scenes uh, at the the Pentagon and in, in, in the White House here, how they were going to respond, because whether it was a campaign to discredit Kramer as maybe this is a just the kind of message that the Soviet Union would want the American public to know about, thinking that maybe nuclear weapons are, are something that you should try to avoid. So therefore, maybe there's less support for advancing the U.S. arsenal, while at the same time, the Russian arsenal gets better. That was the message that the Pentagon was trying to put out there, why this film was dangerous. Mm-hmm. In addition to, you know, if you don't let us have civil defense programs that make people think that you could survive a nuclear war, they might be less reluctant to let you continue to test in places like Australia and later in Nevada and then, um, you know, in, in, the, in the Pacific and everything. It, it is very, very fascinating that, well, yeah. Maybe the portrayal of the movie, you know, the idea of a fallout cloud destroying the world uh, mm. and everywhere. Yeah, the science of that maybe isn't completely accurate. You know, they, their way they were pushing was that their internal report said that most fallout would be in the area, uh, you know, the northern hemisphere. There might be some collateral damage from neighboring countries. So even they talked about there would be it, radiation doesn't care about borders. Uh, very similar that COVID doesn't care about borders. It goes to wherever it needs to because it 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 does it doesn't think about these things. It's just they were able to kind of pick at that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah. And Let's discredit. just remember that they were also denying that atmospheric testing was bad. Right. 
babies are being born now, now with genetic conditions created by the fallout from these nuclear weapons. I mean, this is still going on. This is the thing about nuclear weapons. The environmental damage they do is generational. And whether it's the, the Navajos who mined the uranium from the earth or it's the downwinders, it, it, this stuff lasts for a very long time. It's true there's not mass death like on the beach, but a speck of plutonium, a speck, a pinhead size of plutonium ingested will give you cancer. You won't die from that speck, but it will kill you. You won't die immediately right. from that speck, but it will kill you in the long run. So yeah, this, this is part of what the military wants to do. Everything's fine here, nothing to see, move along. And I think the the best way to wrap this up is I, I love the quote. He's only in one scene. So it's a naval, I think, uh, doctor who's helping on the USS Sawfish after they came back. People are starting to get sick. The first guy who gets oh, sick yeah. on the crew, he, the Dwight says, why? Why now? Why all of a sudden? And the doctor says, why? Why not? It's here. Hit, hit somebody first. Hit this lead. We're not machines. We're not going to fall over in rows, you know. And it's not going to get any better. It's not just a, a, a drunken night of cards um, off off the boat. Uh, it's it's something that's it's going to start happening here. And I, I think that's one of the more also powerful scenes in the film. Yeah, I appreciate the the thorough talk here uh, about the, about the film and the nuclear plots. But still, we have to every episode we do a rating system here where we rate the film uh, out of out of five, with one being kind of a worst film you would never recommend to anybody, and five being terrific. But uh, I like to tailor the rating system based on the plot we have here. If I get super critical about that, I'm going to, I'm going to probably do the same thing on our rating system. So I tailored it up a little bit and I said, let's rate on the beach on a scale of one out of five Coke bottles on a Morris key. <laughs> if you've got just one Coke bottle tapping away, you might occasionally get a word out there that is, you know, makes sense. And maybe someone will come and help you. But if you've got five, you can probably step away for a little while and do whatever you need to. And you'll eventually randomly get some words and people may end up being able to send some help here. I rate this four Coke bottles on a, on a, on a Morse code. Uh, I think it's a seminal movie. Anyone in the, uh, that is interested in this genre or anyone that works in this field should, should watch this film. The ending really hits home. It has a big impact on everybody. I think to me, it's just, we mentioned, it's a little long. It's a movie from 1959. Uh, at sometimes the characters can feel a little bit odd and off and i think that it's just the one thing that kind of keep this as a movie for me and i'm like this is everyone needs to see it but i think anyone in our field um really absolutely should and particularly the book the book is great um, i'm really finally glad I, I got around to reading this book um over christmas break here and i'm really i'm happy that it's here but it is as you mentioned the the ending of the the big shouting score at the very end just kind of makes it a little bit hard to watch and i think that's why audiences maybe weren't as receptive to it not necessarily the anti-nuclear war message but it was just like a Kramer movie a little bit too preachy i don't think it feel i don't feel that as much but i can understand why not everyone want to watch it but i i do recommend this something that everyone needs to see what about you joe mm. well I, i'm going to be a little more generous than you but just a bit more i'm going to give it four and a half Coke bottles. Uh, be, one, be, one of the be, bottles broke because because it's 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 not a five. I mean, this is not a Doctor Strange Love movie, but it is it is so and it's dated, obviously. 
I, I watched in one sitting, you know, you can, it's on YouTube, it's extremely easy to watch and it flows and it moves along and the pacing w- was fine. And I'm also into old movies lately. I'm not sure why. I mean, there's so much material that's coming out every day, right? It's, I can't watch the new movies, the new series that are coming out. And yet I find myself being drawn to just watch Network, for example, which is an, or, an, or, an earlier, one of the first uh, movies to warn about the effect of media on, on public consciousness here. I, I just saw an early movie with Ingrid Bergman and done by Robert Rossellini about Italian refugees after the war. It's called Stromboli, which is a fascinating film to see. I just watched a Charlie Chaplin film from 1914 about called The Immigrant, which was really interesting to see how we're dealing with immigration during these waves of immigration that were coming into the country then. So that's the time capsule. It brings you back there. This movie on those sort of historic basis, as well as the artistic basis, and and for me, the political impact of this film and the book make it a four and a half star movie. If you are concerned about nuclear policy and nuclear strategy and nuclear history, this has got to be on your must see list. And like Network, if we were to open up our windows and start shouting things uh, out, out into the crowd, uh, one thing I'd like to shout out to people is something else. If they want to f- watch uh, something that's related to On the Beach or read more about the topics that were covered in this movie. I've got a couple things to recommend, and I see you as well have got a few uh, on here. So I'll just do mine real quick. Uh, I recommend an article by Beverly Gray called The Continuing Relevance of On the Beach, published in August 3rd, 2015 in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist. It's a great uh, depiction and dis- discussion of On the Beach from someone who made uh, films and kind of the impact that that that, that particular movie has had on them and, and their filmmaking perspective. There's a documentary called Fallout, which is a really hard one to get because it's an Australian documentary, but it's from 2013. It's by Lawrence Johnson, and it's on the writing and of the book and the making of the movie, but it goes into great detail about the movie as a time capsule uh, for that particular period. And I also recommend if you have access to a VR headset or any sort of... Uh, I think it's on YouTube, but it doesn't come across as well. There's a great 2015 documentary called Collisions, and it's about an Aboriginal man in Australia whose first interaction at all with the Western world was witnessing one of those secret United Kingdom nuclear tests in Australia in the 1950s. Did not know what this thing was. Imagine seeing a mushroom cloud rising from the, the ground, not knowing at all what was was, and didn't know for years what it was. And this is a, a great documentary that interviews this gentleman and kind of describes in great detail kind of what he thought. So I think that's particularly relevant here. Uh, but Joe, what would you shout from your window uh, that people should check out? <laughs> I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Oh, wait, wait, that's <laughs> that's from Network. Um, uh, I, I love your recommendations. And uh, Collisions is a particularly uh, effective and evocative Film. I guess it's a film. It's it's short, but it's it's like fifteen it's minutes. Powerful. Yeah, it's good. I, I saw it with a VR headset, and it was it was just terrific. Uh, in the realm of um, sort of documents, go Google the effects of nuclear war, and you will get up this. Um, this one is done by the Office of Technology Assessment. The effects of nuclear war. Twenty years after the movie, nineteen seventy nine, and it still explains in great detail what actually happens here mm-hmm. in nuclear war. What what's what is the fire? What's the blast? What's the radioactivity? So it's the kind of document you want to read if you're in this field and see what they said. I'm sure there are 
I'm not sure that actually, I take that back. I'm not sure there were, there are better, more modern versions of this, but it'd be interesting. Yeah. Well, this is Chris. And this is when Congress had its own scientific and technological advisory group, the office of technology assessment. And it was because of things like this and more particularly one they did years later, uh, not too long later on ballistic missile defense that caused the Republicans under Newt Gingrich, when they took control of the house Mm -hmm. to disband OTA. And I, I, I don't know why Nancy Pelosi hasn't put this back in, but that she should. Yes. She should re- resurrect the Office of Technology Assessment. Congress needs its own scientific and technology advisory group. And that's what OTA was. And they produced seminal studies that people are still recommending, like me, now, 50 years after they were published. Okay. So what else? So, um, so I would go with the movie Seven Days in May. This is, uh, you've reviewed this, I know, in your podcast before. It's a great film. I've always liked it. Burt Lancaster is the head of the uh, uh, Joint Chiefs, and he plots a coup, a coup, (laughs) that's something we've been considering lately. This couldn't possibly happen here. A coup against the president of the United States. Why? Because he's engaged in an arms control treaty with the evil Soviet Union. And, Great film. And he's against this. And Kirk Douglas is the hero that, that thwarts the, the coup. And finally, uh, this is the one I wanted to discuss with you, Tim, but you've already done it, which is Them. Again, one of these early science fiction movies that showed the, the consequences of nuclear testing. And it was depicting allegorically, as you say, the, the threats of nuclear weapons, in this case, the giant ants mutating out of the test tunnels in the Nevada uh, desert, a theme that you saw in the 50s and 60s that radioactivity would cause mutations, Godzilla, and a beast from 2000 fathoms, what monsters generated. So the monster, of course, is the nuclear weapons. What have we done? Here they come to get us. Them is also notable, by the way, for the first uh, known screen appearance of yeah, Leonard Nimoy is in the Leonard background. Leonard Nimoy yeah. comes in. He has one line. <laughs> he hands a fax to the commanding general. That's it. It's a walk-on role. He's in and out. Weirdly enough, still had pointy ears in that one. I don't know why. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so those are my recommendations. Effects of nuclear war, fail-safe. Uh, oh, yes, I forgot. Fail-safe. Go watch the original fail-safe or the George Clooney remake. Again, uh, t- terrific movies on the, the the unintended consequences of our existing nuclear posture. Well, I, I know when, when you were at Plowshares, we had a couple uh, movie nights of watching Godzilla and and, and other films. So maybe we can uh, try to arrange that again uh, when we can all get back together after COVID vaccines are out there to watch them. I think people should check that movie out because it's, it's a great one. Great. Well, Tim, thank you so much yeah, for having you. me on. This was a lot of fun. And thank you for making me sp- spend some focused time and attention on this great book and this great movie. So where can uh, people uh, follow you more? Uh, some of your, your thoughts, maybe on them or this movie or anything else that pops up. I know you're you're at Serencioni on Twitter. Uh, any other uh, projects you wanted to let people know about? Well, as soon as we finish, I have to go write a new article on um, what the heck Joe Biden thinks he's doing on Iran policy. <laughs> And I, I publish a lot these days at the the website of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. It's called, imaginatively enough, Responsible Statecraft, which, <laughs> by the way, is a terrific site. I'm very, I, I admire what the Quincy Institute has done over there, creating this forum for thinking outside the blob, as they like to put it. So you can catch uh, most of my publications these days are, are up there. I'm, I'm still active. I'm still doing things. I just no longer uh, have an organization to run. It's a lot of time to watch more movies and have a lot more thinking time, which is great. (laughs) So thanks again for coming on here. Thank you, Tim. And thank you for being so super critical. (laughs) I do my best. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, either about the geography of, of Melbourne or maybe the nuclear content, a couple ways you can let me know about that. I'm on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. I've got an email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com and the website, supercriticalpodcast.com, where we put all of our show notes and other resources up here. So feel free to check that out as well. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer and Joe Serencioni. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.